There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free this is holly fry from stuff you missed in history class the national sales event is on at your toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new suv like an adventure ready rav4 available with all-wheel drive your new rav4 is built for performance on any terrain or check out a stylish and comfortable highlander with seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com toyota Let's go places. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. For the best experience, listen with headphones. It's about a year and a half ago now. My kids at the time were six and eight, and this was during the lockdown restrictions in the UK, so no parents could go in the school grounds. Coincidentally, the school did this exercise. It's an English language exercise where schools will present some kind of intriguing mystery and they will have the children view the mystery and then write about it later. I think they did another one previously, which was a detective story. So the kids would arrive at school and they'd go into a classroom and there would be police tape and an upturned chair and maybe some documents scattered on the floor or something. Like, they set up this kind of crime scene. They'd take the children in, they'd let them view it in a kind of structured way, and then they'd take them away and ask them to write about what they had seen and to try and kind of infer from what they had seen what they thought might have happened. The thing that got me thinking about the aerial school was when they staged this crashed UFO. Because it was during the restrictions on movement, None of the parents, apart from the parents who were in on the hoax, if you like, had seen the actual crash site. Kind of fascinating because I couldn't verify anything of what they were saying. And none of the other parents could tell me about it because no one else knew about it. It was just something that the school did. It was all very confusing. Like all of the stories that I got back from both of them, because they were slightly different ages, six and eight, I saw like a variation in how they reported it back to me. They had all of these stories about this device that had crashed in the school grounds. There was talk about green goop, charred like wreckage, like a trail where the thing had come into the playground. The younger one, my daughter, was talking about an alien. Apparently there was like a rumor that there was an alien going around the school, but she hadn't actually seen it. My son gave a much more kind of detailed description and drawing. But when I talked to him and asked him to describe it, I hadn't seen the actual photograph of the object. 
I'd only found that picture afterwards. And it was interesting to see what he got right about it and what he didn't get right about it. It just got me thinking about how children recall things, like how perceptive they are. Like my son's an articulate, bright kid, but he's still got some things wrong about what he'd seen. And it really just made me think, because I'd, I'd heard about the aerial school story previously, and I would read something about it every now and again, but there wasn't any very good solution. There wasn't very many good arguments about what it was. It just always seemed like too shrouded in mystery. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 3, Puppets. In Season 2 of Strange Arrivals, We examined how UFO folklore is created through a process involving competing explanations of a UFO event. And it seems to me that the aerial school encounter is currently in the early phase of this dynamic. Though the encounter occurred 30 years ago, the details are just now reaching a large audience, mostly through James Fox's 2020 film, The Phenomenon. They were trying to communicate. Randall Nickerson's 2022 film, Aerial Phenomenon. This journey is literally to pick up the pieces and put them back together. And any number of podcasts. So as we look at the aerial school students' accounts of their encounter, keep in mind that the process of proposing and evaluating alternative explanations for what the students saw is just underway. Basically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to establish a standard of evidence for UFO cases so we can find ones that stand up to scrutiny and separate out the ones that don't. And this one was among the vast majority of cases that are supported only by horrible, horrible evidence and and no decent evidence. I'm Brian Dudding. I'm probably best known as the host of the Skeptoid podcast since 2006. You've heard Brian on each of the first two seasons of Strange Arrivals. On his Skeptoid podcast, he has covered hundreds of cases of the mysterious and allegedly paranormal. Generally, the conclusion from the scientists in Africa is that this was one of a very common phenomenon in African schools of mass hysteria. And, you know, mass hysteria is a very unfortunately named phenomenon because it sounds like it means people running around screaming and waving their arms and acting hysterically, but it's not. In a 2011 article for the Malawi Medical Journal, research psychologist Demobli Kokoda includes the aerial school incident in a list of cases of mass hysteria in African schools. He defines mass hysteria as, quote, a situation in which various people all suffer from similar unexplained symptoms. He also talks about hysterical contagion, which he writes, quote, consists of quick dissemination within a collection of people of a symptom or a set of symptoms for which no physical explanation can be found. The article lists cases that occurred in South Africa, Tanzania, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Uganda. But there is a difference between the aerial encounter and the others described in the article. 
The other occurrences all involve either physical effects such as itching, fainting, or uncontrolled laughing, or strong psychological effects such as aggression and hallucinations. Here's an example, also from Zimbabwe. In 2009, a suspected case of mass hysteria struck Nemanwa Primary School in Masavingo, Zimbabwe, where pupils were reportedly screaming wildly and complaining of visions of strange snake-like creatures and lions. Teachers said on average six pupils were affected every day. Some of the pupils would collapse, scream, or tell of visions of snakes, lions, hyenas, and crocodiles while others would behave as if they were in a trance. The development forced the authorities to dispatch pastors to conduct prayer sessions at the school. A reverend involved with this effort blamed the hysteria on, quote, evil spirits and demons, and reported that all had returned to normal. In the case of the aerial school, I'm not entirely convinced by the mass hysteria hypothesis. It really stands out in the article as being quite different from the other examples. The aerial students don't have the same psychological or physical reactions as the children in the other cases. But as we explored last episode, the way that the investigation was conducted into what did happen was not conducive to getting to the truth. They had some very deeply motivated UFO writers come and do this group story sharing among the kids and sort of form this narrative as a group. And that's kind of why we have these recorded stories. There's no worse way to collect evidence than to do kind of a group story sharing session where everyone starts bringing up their recollections. And then the, the UFO author was acting as sort of a moderator and collecting the story and forming it as it went. That's not how you collect evidence to find out what actually happened. And so we're, we're left really only with the UFO authors' sort of interpretations and their preferred version of what they think happens to these kids. Dunning points out that who is doing the investigation is also important. With any investigation, the ideal is to have someone who is objective and interested only in determining the facts of the incident. This was, of course, not the case at Ariel School. Of Cynthia Hind, he says... You would do it by someone who is objective. You certainly wouldn't do it by someone who's actively writing a book about how aliens are visiting the Earth. So, I mean, they had the worst possible person interviewing the kids, and they did it in the worst possible way. So, I mean, really, there's no way to go back and find out if anything did happen. Another issue that Dunning seizes on is that most of the students on the playground that day did not, in fact, see anything unusual. Only 63 of the more than 200 students reported seeing the UFO or the strange beings. You never hear about the, the vast majority of the kids in the playground who said nothing happened and who wouldn't say that, no, there was no spaceship. I'm sorry, I'm not going to go on board with that story. Finally, Dunning mentions that some biases and misconceptions about Africa are sometimes used to bolster the case. An element that's often reported is that this is some rural African school and these were poor African children in the middle of the country and they had no prior knowledge of aliens or UFOs or anything like that. And that couldn't be further from the truth at all. Ariel School was, as we have seen, an expensive private school that largely catered to wealthier Zimbabweans, many from Harare, which was a large modern African city. 
And of course they'd seen all the movies with UFOs. And it's been pointed out that that's why the drawings that they made of the spaceship, why they all looked just exactly like the stereotypical flying saucer with the foot pads and the little bump on top and the little aliens getting out and standing on it. The pictures all look very stereotypical. And that's because these kids had the same modern experience as anyone else with UFOs and aliens in the media. So if we agree with Dunning's strong misgivings about the investigation and have doubts that the aerial students saw an actual alien craft, what did they see? As I said before, UFO researchers are still in the early stages of developing alternative theories about what happened. But an especially interesting theory has been put forward by researcher and writer Gideon Reed, who you heard at the opening of this episode. And it involves puppets. Trust me, it's more compelling than it sounds. After the break. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. It's a very difficult encounter to kind of unpack. And what I was trying to do was to look at what the most spontaneous things were that are in the testimony and try and see them as clearly as possible through all of the confusion and possible outside bias from the people that were interviewing the children and to just try and imagine in a way what they could have been and then to try and find a real world plausibility this is Gideon Reed. On his blog, Gideor1.com, 
He's put forth a theory about the truth behind the aerial school encounter that is both unusual and compelling. So, you know, I'm not saying that I think that this is definitely what happened, but I found it really interesting that when I was researching this, it seemed like a fairly novel idea that no one else had really gone down the route to the same degree that I had. Unlike Brian Dunning and Demobly Kokoda, Reed starts with the assumption that the students did, in fact, see something, that this was not simply a case of mass hysteria. They all seem really bright, really articulate, really self-possessed, really truthful. There's nothing in what I could see of those interviews that indicates any kind of prank that they're playing. And it really just got me thinking, what is it that these kids saw then? Because they obviously saw something, but I think the narrative or the interpretation of what they have seen has been affected by outside voices, if you like. Reed was doing his research while England and the rest of the world was under COVID restrictions. During this time, he became interested in making puppets for his kids to play with. So he was doing research into puppet making and watching them engage in creative play with the puppets. At the same time, he was also thinking about aerial school and what could explain what happened there. Just all of a sudden, these two things kind of connected in a funny kind of way. Like I was thinking about aerial school in the background. I was thinking about the hoax thing at my kid's primary school. I was thinking about it in the back of my head, like what these kids could have seen. And then I started to like listen more intently to the children's interviews. And I thought there are things in the, in the gaps in what they say that are intriguing. And there are specific parts of their descriptions of what they saw, which just seem completely spontaneous, just come out of nowhere. Like, I think Emily mentions that they had stiff necks. Salas said that she didn't see any facial expression movement on the face. There are other kids talking about, you know, the whole thing about the figures moving in slow motion or having strange jerky movements or appearing and disappearing. All of those things just seemed to kind of map on to the idea that maybe what they had seen from a distance, because from what I understand, the observation that they made was from at least 100 meters away. So those things just all started to kind of map on to the idea that what these children might have seen were puppets. That was like my original hunch. This is all fine and good, but why would there be puppets across the field from Ariel's school? And why would the kids confuse them for aliens? Well, to start off with, it turns out that during that time, there were puppet programs cropping up in many places in Southern Africa. I also came across Gary Friedland's work with Puppets Against AIDS in the Southern African countries, this kind of huge and like, rich program of workshops that he put together. And he had all of these people kind of traveling around all Africa doing these, what must have been quite difficult shows to do, just going to rural communities, talking about public health. Here's Gary Friedman talking about his program to raise AIDS awareness in the documentary Puppets in Prison. Puppets in Prison is a, is a short slice of life encapsulating eight weeks of working with these young people. Our group have really opened themselves up and exposed parts of their lives which are very intimate and personal to them. We've taken these parts and these messages and transformed them into short performances. Friedman's program provided workshops so that local people could create their own puppets 
and put on a public health show about the AIDS crisis. Across Southern Africa, a slew of puppets were being made. You can find pictures on the internet. Some are the size of hand puppets or slightly larger. Some are simply enormous heads with distinct faces and unblinking eyes that were worn by people both in programs and in public to draw attention to the show. The puppets that a rep put together, as far as I've been able to kind of find out from my research, they have just like a number of similarities to some of the children's descriptions, both how the children describe the figures that they saw and the drawings that they made. As in a, a lot of puppetry, you get most puppets, it seems, or a lot of puppets have large eyes because eyes are how characters get to communicate with audiences. A lot of the puppets that they happen to make just have kind of large, compelling eyes and gray skin. And this is consistent with the testimony of the aerial students. And it was all black, and they had big black eyes. Uh, I only remember that his eyes were quite big. A black man. He, he was dressed in black, and he had big eyes. He had a big head and big black eyes, and was dressed in a black bodysuit. There was a huge variation in how the children describe what they saw, and it goes from short, pot-bellied creatures. It almost looked like a real person, except it was fairly plump. To like a tall, thin stick figure. I don't know what it was, but it was very thin. All I saw was like a, a long thing, and he was very, very, very thin. You know, I was simultaneously like looking at the puppetry workshops. All of these descriptions kind of funnel into, or can be mapped onto, this idea of a puppetry workshop. It makes Gideon wonder what is more likely, that a group of unusual-looking aliens happen to land in this field, or that something that's certainly out of the ordinary, but definitely earthly, is what the students saw. There are other things that I found really interesting. In particular, I think Salma's drawing is fascinating because she said in her interviews that this is the one of the kind of disembodied head amongst the long grass and the trees. And she said in subsequent interviews that that's exactly what she saw. And I'm looking at that and then I come across one of the larger puppets that a rep made, which I think Thomas Riccio kind of in his article, which I quote in my first post, he nicknames the Grey Giants. He wrote this brilliant article about a rep where he writes this brilliant kind of literary description of these two-meter-tall puppets wandering around the streets, kind of stirring up a crowd in order for them to come and see the show that a rep were about to put on. Here is part of that quote. Shoeless children in tattered clothes scattered, helter-skelter, running down compact, unpaved, and garbage-strewn streets. Their screaming was a blend of fear and excitement, their faces going from shock to beaming smiles as they turned their runs alternating between flight and leaps of playfulness. Infants wailed in spasms of tears. Adults stood curious, amazed and bemused. All of the action on the street came to a halt as an eight-foot-tall figure with an enormous, cartoon-like gray head shocked the grim reality of the slum into surreal, with a perfect equatorial blue sky as backdrop. So Riccio gives a description of the public reaction to this kind of puppet in a setting where it is clear that what they are seeing is a puppet. Despite this knowledge, 
there is a strong and varied reaction from both children and adults. It's not hard to extrapolate this to a group of children at a distance, not knowing what they were looking at. Then add the UFO reported over Southern Africa just two days before, and adults asking if what they saw were aliens, and you very possibly end up with what we see with the aerial school students. As Gideon said at the beginning of this segment, he is not himself completely convinced that this theory is 100% correct. He's offering it for others to evaluate, and he is aware that it may be affected by his own biases. I really kind of tried to think about how I might be kind of falling into a trap of just overlaying all of these um, coincidental elements of puppetry onto this encounter in a way that fits perhaps my bias, which is that I'm, I don't particularly think that it's likely that they saw something that's out of this world. So I'm very aware that what I might be doing is kind of fitting things to a pattern that already exists. But I think that that is something that is done frequently, certainly in ufology, where people are looking at different encounters around the world and saying, well, that's just like this and that's just like this, so they must be the same thing. We saw this in the previous episode with Cynthia Hines' predisposition to find UFOs and aliens. And we saw it when John Mack arrived and interviewed the students to find that the aliens seemed to be communicating telepathically with them, giving them a message that just happened to dovetail with Mack's own strongly held beliefs. Indeed, Mack had been at the forefront of alien abduction research and had theorized that the phenomenon was also a call to humankind to evolve spiritually and embrace environmentalism and peace, just as Mack had in his own life. Not only that, but Mack had developed a framework for abductions that literally transcended the boundaries of reality. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Rima El Kayali, Jesse Funk, and Noemi Griffin, with executive producers Alexander Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey, and supervising producer Josh Thane, with voice acting by Rima El Kayali and Zachary Volbel. Learn more about the show at grimandmild.com slash strangearrivals and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.